Welcome to The Truth in His Heart, Beyond, and we are back in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. I am your host, Rob Lee. Thank you for tuning in to these conversations at the intersection of arts, culture, and community. Today, I am eager to have a conversation with my next guest, an illustrator and cartoonist resided in Philadelphia. Uh, he's fond of chili sauce and chihuahuas. Please welcome Anuj Shrestha. So, so thank you for taking the time to um, to join us on this podcast on the truth and its art. Um, to to get things started, uh, could you introduce yourself? And I, th- this might be a little bit of a tricky part. Some people rebel against this this sort of second part of this question, but can you pinpoint the moment or moments that you knew like art creativity was a calling for you? Sure. Um, yeah. So my name is Anuj, and I'm a uh, illustrator slash cartoonist, uh, you know, living in, in Philadelphia. And I've been sort of, I, uh, I, my ethnic heritage background is Nepali, but I, uh, moved to the U S when I was just around two years old. So I, I, you know, was raised most of my life here in the States. And, um, I did sort of, I guess to answer your, the second part of your question first, I, I feel like, um, I, I I felt like always like just a sort of instinctual need to draw like most children, I think, which it's almost like, you know, a fundamental human act. And uh, it was encouraged throughout my like childhood. And I, I have some memories of like maybe in early like first or second grade, um, certain teachers like noting that I was, you know, I, I did have some sort of like skill around drawing and uh, it, there was some ability there. And I think my mom was good at encouraging that on my part, uh, like for, like for me to sort of like, you know, just pursue that more. And um, I feel like there were a couple key moments where I, I fell in love with the art of cartooning. And that actually was reading early Archie comics and I, I mean, I have vivid memories of being an anchor. So I, I traveled around a lot, like after, um, you know, after we came to the States when I was around two in Nepal, we were on the West Coast for a while. We were in, uh, at one point we were in Oregon briefly. And then um, and then my family was in um, California in like Orange County. And then we settled in, uh, eventually settled in Anchorage, Alaska. And that's where I spent like the early childhood. And um there was a friend at my elementary school this was probably like around fourth grade and they had they just had a bag of archie comics that were like old used issues from like probably like from 10 or 15 years prior and he was just selling them for really cheap i mean you know we were like nine years old i guess so it's not like we had a lot of money but (laughs) so he i just remember getting a bunch of those comics and just being in love falling in love with um in particular dan de carlo's uh, cartooning and he's he kind of established the house house style at that time like through from like the 70s onward into the like 2000s and uh so I was really obsessed with his because they you know Archie always had a stable of artists who worked in their own style but I always knew like De Carlo's work because of its finesse and clarity and 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 just like um very fluid line art um yeah. and uh Harry Lucy was is another uh, one of the early artists who also drew really beautifully. So uh, I, I just remember just being obsessed with them, trying to draw them, the characters myself, like, you know, to very like poor effect. And then, um, but, and, and I also was very aware that the stories were pretty inane and like not that interesting. Yeah. Um, at best, they were like, like vaudeville little sketches, like kind of like slapstick. And yeah. when it leaned into that stuff, I always thought it was, that's when it was actually enjoyable. But um, it's funny as I'm sure it like reflect the political time in like the Reagan era and stuff as time went on, but um, there, the, the comics would become preachy or they would become like really like contrived and just not, you know, and, and they're just, at the end of the day, they're just trying to sell these comics to like, to their dem- to their demographic of like elementary school kids or high school kids or you know um but anyway yeah so that was that was probably like a key moment that i um i knew that i i really loved the art the, the sort of the form of of comics and then also wanting to kind of do them myself and then eventually uh as i got older i got into like you know because i'm i'm 
you know, I'm I'm not a, I'm no spring chicken. So I I was there when like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles comics individual issues were coming out. I mean, this is before like the whole onslaught of the Nickelodeon partnerships and all the other stuff they do, but um, or, or where it was like a, a very popular TV show. And these were like kind of gritty and drawn like Kevin Eastman drew and like this very sort of, you know, scratchy, but yet kind of also kind of clean style that I loved. Um, <laughs> and I actually didn't really get into much superhero comics. I I was into Todd McFarlane's Spider-Man um, and... And a few X-Men issues here and there, Sal Buscema, those people. But like, ultimately, I didn't read a lot of superhero comics. And then the next big lightning bolt for me was discovering sort of alternative indie comics, whatever the term you want to use. Uh, in particular, and this was in college, and that's in the work of people like Chris Ware, Dan Klaus, Los Bros Hernandez, uh, Julie Doucette, and um, and those people. Thank you. Wow. That I mean, I'm, I'm hearing things that. You know, I, I feel like there was a part, you know, you have like, this is going to be a comic reference. I have to make it a comic movie reference when you have a canon event. That's what I'm feeling like I'm hearing pieces of like from uh, into the Spider-Verse, I guess, or across the Spider-Verse where <laughs> okay. I, when I when this is sort of my creative outlet. Right. When I was younger, I wanted to be a comic book artist. <laughs> so, you know, um, I was always getting into trouble. I was always drawing like superhero characters, like, you know, like X-Men and things of that nature. And when you, you know, mentioned like Ninja Turtles or what have you, it's like, that was something that I love. I grew up with that. And, you know, I, I, I was recently uh, talking with my partner and I was telling her, I was like, man, you got to watch the original Ninja Turtles movies. Gritty is like New York. <laughs> and she's a yeah. New Yorker and she's like, I guess. And I was like, it's, it's real. And you know, sort of being able to go back and revisit some of the licensing stuff and some of the the different hands that that property went through, and mm -hmm. it's like, okay, this is more challenging than what my personality is. I'm more sure. so. I have a straight line. I'm interested in this stuff. I'm going to buy it as an adult. I literally have a Shredder action figure behind me. Nice. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, having some of those those opportunities and. You know, one of the other things that I've gotten into recently as it relates to comics and revisiting sort of something that I ultimately didn't pursue. You know, it was an art school I tried to get into and then just I was told I you know wasn't good enough. So I just kind of gave up on it. That was literally the story. And, you know, being able to revisit it in, in a different way. You know, I am writing a goofy comic. I'm, I'm hiring artists, but I'm writing a goofy comic about cat lawyers, which is really fun. And being able to revisit that, I, I think when you give up on something, it's an opportunity to maybe look at it differently. And yeah. and even doing some of the um, the work around interviews with folks such as yourself, um, I, I was recently able to you know connect with the folks at Small Press Expo in uh, Bethesda, and you know do stuff there. So being more you know familiar with the more independent artists and more independent books, and just looking at that as a you know, a really cool piece of work creatively, art-wise, but also the sort of storytelling component that's there. And it's like, I feel like I'm back, but in a very different way, you know, as far as being back around comics. Okay. Have you, do you draw it all now or not? Uh, no, I, I gave it up. I, every now and again, I, you know, like I'm in meetings that are super boring and naturally that childlike wonder come back. I was like, yeah. What boss looks like right now. Yeah. <laughs> them, I'm going to give them alien antlers or the little the little things in their heads. Um, sure. But yeah, I, I I do it on occasion. Um, but it's it's not to the degree in which it was. It was just like I was that kid, right? In class, let's say you have a test that's like it should take you 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. I'm like 20 minutes in, 10 minutes in. I've already been drawing for like five minutes. I've you know I would take my B and then I'm taking the rest of the class to draw. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, that, I mean, that's cool that you, like, even if you didn't end up, like, drawing, you know, professionally or whatever, that you still, you're you're able to work that passion into, like, what you do, like, your, your, the other things you do. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's definitely something. And, you know, w when I saw it and wanted to revisit it, and then, you know, being in that the sort of scene, you know, and, and, and going to like the small press expo and even being part of this collective and that network, I'm like, oh, gee, these are actually cool people. These aren't like the jerk faces that I've been around at other like comic cons and events like that, which 
it's just like it's the hustle. I'm like, oh, I'm talking to this person as, hey, I'm a journalist covering this stuff. Hey, you're you're selling work, but you want to share your story about how you go about your work. That is so cool to me and having that opportunity to do so. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I want to move into this this next question. It was something you mentioned, and this is like I'll say like my five dollar segue, if you will. Um, so you, you touched on like living in different parts of like the U.S. like growing up. Um, was there anything about like those different like landscapes or those different places? Like you mentioned Alaska, you know, like I think of what 30 days a night immediately going back to our vampire talk before we got started. Uh, have, has any of those like different like locations and those different experiences living in those vastly different places influence how you go about your work as an illustrator, as a cartoonist? Any, any thoughts around that? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think, um, I think more when I was growing up, I wasn't as sort of, uh, I, I wasn't as concerned with, I, I, there was a point where we, I almost got a little bit used to moving around. Uh, and so I, I don't know if I necessarily, like the stuff I was doing, uh, you know, when I was first sort of becoming comfortable, like drawing and and te- like maybe even creating my own stories and that kind of thing. I, I don't feel like it was had a deep connection to the immediate environment. Um, and I, I do feel like the stuff that was that was happening later and and up to like the present is often that will be a little more affected by by my environment where I live. And I mean, I tend to like at, at least after school and everything, I've been always drawn towards living in cities or at least like really close to like a city. And um, I still find that to be like an interesting like uh source of like creative fodder just just it's city environments always are always very, very compelling to me more, more so than like like beautiful like sort of like natural surroundings and, and that kind of thing and um if anything i i also maybe from the experience of having uh was being born in nepal and then like having visited it like throughout my life and then also the experience of living in alaska i do think there's an interesting counterpoint of like being around these really beautiful like um, uh, just very gorgeous natural surroundings. And then also, but yet I'm, I'm also very drawn to like the sort of chaos of the city, the grime, the dirt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely a, a city person as well. Um, I, I, I can say this in, in that vein. Um, I, it was probably about 10 years ago. Um, maybe, maybe a little longer, where I visited like New Mexico. So not the same as Nepal, not the same as um, Alaska, what have you. Um, but it, it's a different setting, like being in Baltimore, being in these wild East Coast cities that just have like a certain aesthetic. It's like a lot of gray hair, a lot of streets. Sure. And yeah. and I get up super early, like even now, and I take that morning like jog, that two, that two mile morning jog. I'm like a lot of rats. Whereas, you know, <laughs> when I was there, like sort of that, that Southwest region and in Clovis, New Mexico, I'm visiting my brother for the first time. So having that, right. And just seeing just roads, just, just Mm -hmm. like sort of isolation and appreciating the landscape, noticing the the color of the sky and, you know, seeing those different things immediately started thinking of like, you know, paintings and and the scenery, things of that nature. And then coming back here, it's like, Oh, right. Great buildings. Here we go. We're back. And, you know, loving that, but definitely lo- loving being in the city, but wanting that sort of departure on, 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 in instances, like I think of when writers need that time away from their regular scenery and it's like, I'm going to book a place, a cabin, and I'm just going to write there. Cause it's a reset. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's, re- I mean, that, that sort of contradiction or needing that balance of, of that openness. And then also then being comfortable making your home in like the heart of the city or, or in like a very, like a dense concentrated space. I, I, that is fascinating. I, I will say, I, I don't know if it's because I, I did grow up uh, also. So then from basically around like when I was 11 onward and into uh, high school and up eventually into college, I lived in Colorado and it was in the suburbs of Colorado. So it was very, yeah, obviously it was like 
the dry climate, obviously beautiful view of the Rockies. So mountains have always been pretty consistent, I guess, throughout my childhood. But I, I, I don't know if it was from being in that suburban environment that now as an adult, I, I don't have a desire to be in, in that sort of space. And I, I think I just always want to be near a city if I can. 100%. It, it makes so much sense. I have a, I have a good friend who um, we were, he was at that stage, he was younger and it was like about, about an eight year difference in age between he and I. And I'm like, look, man, trust me, you want to be in the city, bro. Everything is there in the city. I was like, culture <laughs> is there, the museums, the different restaurants. Right, right. He's like, nah, I want to be out there like in Crofton. I was like, you want to be out in Crofton, which is like literally you just go there to let your dreams dissipate. It's just, it's just like, and no shots to Crofton, but also it's just like, mm. is it like it's residential suburban or like, yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely big suburbs. And it's kind of like one of those almost like work cities. It's like a planned community kind of vibe. And it's like, okay. if so any culture out there, it feels like kind of artificial. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that's, I mean, that's like all over America, right? Like all over this, like this, the States, like cities are, you know, you, you have those where it's just like a strings of mini malls and, and sub planned, planned housing and suburb, suburbs and all that. Yeah. It's like you have your one ethnic restaurant and then everything else is some weird right. <laughs> American, new American is like, this is bad, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I, I mean, I have friends who are comfortable living in spaces like that. And I think I, for me, I just, I, I can visit, but I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be living in, around there. Yeah. I hear you. So you, you touched on the, the the freelance component. So with being a a freelance like artist, you're you're working with clients. You're 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 doing projects, um, and you've got an impressive list. Like I'm on your website right now, and I'm like, hold up, like this, like how, how am I qualified to talk to you right now? You know what I mean? I, I, I see. I also really needs to be updated. It's it's been like neglected for like six months at least. I think if not more. <laughs> yeah. But there, there's some, you know, I see, I see, I see all of the New Yorks. <laughs> yeah, a lot of New York uh, press clients, different, different New York publications, I guess. Yeah. And, and, you know, just the, the work that's on there for the clients is, is really, really cool. I really dig it. So what is your process in like establishing like strong initial rapport with new clients, like building that up? Um, and, you know, shamelessly, I might be asking for myself as a podcaster that's in uh, that's available, but also for folks that are in this sort of freelance space that, you know, are looking for clients and looking for projects. How do you establish that initial spark and then like maintain a really good working relationship? Uh, that's a, yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, well, I did, so I went to uh, a School of Visual Arts in New York, and I actually got my MFA there with the focus on illustration. And um, that, that was like during the early mid 2000s. So I, I mean, one of the helpful things that that program sort of um, instilled in us is to, as we were getting ready to complete the complete, you know, our MFAs, they were, you know, they knew we were all going to, and we were in the field of illustration. So it's, you know, you work with clients, you work with like, you know, there was, there was a group of us who worked with, like, we were focused on children's books. There was a group that was focused on doing comics. And then there were, there was like another group that was maybe focused on doing editorial. Um, and at the time I, I had very minimal experience working in any form of editorial illustration, or working for any magazines or newspapers or anything like that. But um, I did have like a couple friends and an illustrator a colleague of mine, and she was a few years before me, uh, and she's like a superstar, Yuko Shimizu. Uh, she had hooked me up with like one of my first illustration gigs for, um, I believe it was the Financial Times UK edition. And this was like in the mid 2000s. And uh, that sort of kind of, uh, you know, like, threw me into that sort of experience of working with with working with an art director and working you know working with an editor and um and I, I think one thing that helped was that I could I could work relatively quickly so you know some of the early jobs that were had relatively quick turnarounds uh that wasn't a problem but I I think of course, because it was like one of my first experiences working professionally, I was very nervous and wanting to make sure everything, uh, you know, was right. And um, 
and, and then what the, so I'm kind of going off on a small tangent, but like what ended up happening is I so I did a couple more gigs for that for that publication and because they liked kind of some of the earlier things I had done. And um and, and then what had happened was the the problem with working in editorial illustration as as like to, to support yourself is it's it's very you know unpredictable and you don't know and a lot of the jobs are uh you know they, sometimes they're small jobs they're they're not significant enough to allow you to make rent and and such so basically um i was also at the same time desperately looking for uh like a, a regular at least like a you know a full-time position in in any capacity but i was also being very stubborn and you know just as long as i could just draw like or do something in in the visual arts then i was then i would be okay and um and fortunately i was able to find a job with a, a small startup that was kind of a technology company uh and then i i worked and they they were creating like language devices for uh children who are like nonverbal and and who had like autism, cerebral palsy, et cetera. So basically I worked creating graphics for their language program and I was used, yeah. And it was, that was like a full-time job. That was great. And uh, I was, you know, I felt super sort of comfortable just relying on a regular check and having benefits. And that was like about two and a half years, just under three years, I think. And then, um, and then the company was bought out and then, I, I was kind of thrown into the freelance world and it like most people can most illustrators can tell you getting a full-time salaried illustration job is very rare and yeah. and especially one with benefits um because most companies or or creative houses or anything they will you know they'll they'll hire uh people on contract and um so uh i was panicking this was like back in 2009 and i was you know uh, for a while, kind of floundering there, and I was trying to get a like a, a comic project off the air, but that's not that like uh, off the ground. But like that's not something that you can really rely on in terms of income, especially as a new artist and or someone just getting into the field. So uh, I I basically you know I eventually did get a job, uh, or I I started working with um, an ad agency, and and a good friend from school was able to get me um in the door and we I was at, for this was like in the 2009 2010 uh time and at one point there was a stable of like at least maybe 10 to 15 illustrators working at this ad agency and uh we we all like we, we became our own like sort of community because we also love geeking out about like comics and and horror movies and and any sort of like really uh provocative visual art we like you know and it was a wonderful workplace and uh so i was doing that for a while that also ended up drying up um and the agency eventually laid off a bunch of the, the uh, nobody was hired full-time everybody was like kind of what they call permalancing or freelancing like just you know uh and um i think what ended up happening is around like 2015 2016 um i had actually moved to philly in 2014 but like Maybe a, a year after that move, um, I was still I, I was sending out like promo emails to art directors with just like some visual samples, and I had given I had been given some good advice from some uh, friends and colleagues from SVA about how to promote, and it, it was it was like a, you know like everything it was slow at the beginning, and I don't know if a lot of people knew my work, and then. Um, and then around I think it was about 2015 or 2016 I got my first job with the New Yorker, just doing a like a small editorial piece, uh, illustrating like a movie review. And um, it was tough because I, I like the, the job required me to draw uh, faces and like, and I'm not a portrait illustrator. Like some people are amazing at capturing likenesses. I'm not one of those people. And, uh, but I just like sort of struggled through it and it was fine. I think, I mean, I, it was fine. I think they were okay with it, um, but uh so after that point on i just started kind of uh i i joined like instagram very late uh like in relation to like people who had been on it for a while and uh i i used that as a forum to just like regularly post either sketchbook drawings or little comics experiments because i don't actually work i haven't worked on any long form graphic novels because most of my stuff is like experimental shorts yeah. and and but the i guess the 
Instagram platform is pretty limited because you you know people look at comics in like a square format or maybe a slightly like you know maybe slightly portrait like uh orientation but for the most part it's it's very awkward to like read comics like like through your phone but i guess people have adapted and yeah now at this point like people are making comics in square panels to be very clearly read through like you know through that platform but um i will say i think a lot of people started seeing my work on Instagram and particularly art directors. And I think that helped a lot uh, with, with me starting to get more regular client work. And then another big client uh, that was key in helping me sort of establish my freelance career was also um, the art, the sort of master art director, Deb Bishop for the New York Times. Uh, she does, uh, she oversees the New York Times Kids Edition, which they publish bi-monthly, I believe. And um and it's a really beautifully laid out uh 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 section of the newspaper and it's full color and it's but it's also printed on newsprint so it has that nice texture and 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 they get like a great like sort of variety of illustrators to to work on it and i've been fortunate enough to do three covers of it at this point and then then various um inside uh you know illustrations as well um great so I don't know, Dave, did I answer your question? <laughs> I don't know. Like, no, no, no. Uh, you, you, you definitely like, like keyed in on sort of like how those connections come about. And here, here's the funny thing about it. You, you've actually answered the follow-up question already because I'm, I'm hearing the challenges that were in there early on as well. Um, yeah. So it's like, you, you kind of are an overachiever right there. I don't like that. I don't like when that happens. <laughs> no, but, but, but it is, it is something really to consider. Like, you know, as, as I'm doing this and, you know, I, I was in this spot, you know, I've been a podcaster for 15 years almost. And I was in a spot where, you know, I had this day job with the full benefits and all of that good stuff. But this was sort of me trying to tame the creative beast. And that job went away. I was laid off. And then yeah, creative yeah. stuff started suffering. But the day job was funding the creative stuff. And now in having sort of these conversations with folks and being in all of that, the depression, the not having benefits, the, the uncertainty, all of that stuff, right? For years and getting to a stage now and having these great conversations with, with artists and creative types and, and folks in and around business as well has given me this, this concept of, you know, part of sort of the day job and, and what I need from that is almost it being the funder. You know, just being able to have some degree of structure around it, and I right. gives me sort of that safety net. So when I find like funding or something, I don't really stop doing this. It adds to it. It makes it a bit easier. It adds capacity, and um, but also even one of the things you were touching on is a sort of connection to folks, being folks that are in your network. You know, sort of like we can commiserate and talk about stuff that we're into. You know, as far as yeah. we're on the same spot, the uh, permalancers, I believe you said, and uh, right. and then you know having sort of those connections for for work. Um, you know, I I'm teaching this semester, right? And this was a referral from someone who had been on a podcast. It was like, would you be interested in doing this? I was like, I don't know how to get the school system. I don't have a degree. And he was just like, let's just tee it up. And it's now a thing. And, the, and so kind of being aware of that, that sort of stuff when you're carving your own lane. And, you know, so often, and I, and I, and I would imagine you relate to this. Um, we're not just doing one thing. We're doing so many different things to try to make this sort of artist lifestyle, I guess, like float yeah. and work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there's no... There's no like, uh, I mean, despite the existence of art schools and and all these like degree programs, there's no way to like dictate how to, you know, uh, create like a, a sustainable model for like pursuing creative creativity and like as as a professional career. And um, I, I think there, yeah, of course, there's guidelines and stuff you can do, but uh it's at the end of the day it's there, there is a lot of luck involved and and then of course like just you know having the right connections and and just really being into the doing the work and i just know that i at the end there was a point where i'm just like i can't i can't imagine myself doing a job that involved that didn't involve some sort of like like drawing or sort of in some way and i i'm very fortunate that i've been able to do that even though 
I mean, for years, the precarity of freelancing was so stressful that I was like, I just, I'm going to have to just get like some sort of regular full-time job. But um, I, I don't know, at this point, I guess I've, I try to ignore that voice about like, okay, this, it's been a, if it's been like a slow few weeks or something, but um, you know, uh, at the end of the day, I just, I know that being able to do like what, what I being able to sort of support myself through the through drawing, which is like the ultimate, you know, creative satisfaction and sort of life affirming practice for me. Uh, that that's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah. I I talk to to folks, a lot of folks in the visual space or what have you, visual artists, and you know, I, I hear sort of the same thing. We're on the same sort of wavelength. Where if someone came to me and said, "Look, you're you're making this." I can offer you this, you doing this creative thing is your full-time income generator, but you're paid less, but you're paid enough that you can live off of it, but you're paid less than what you're making. Yes, uh -huh. taking it because it's much more satisfying. It's this idea. And I think we all, I think many of us, I don't know if we all, but we, many of us have this imperative to create and do something that comes from the soul. And yeah. when you have like, I know my way around a spreadsheet, right? But when you have that as sort of the day job and the, the yeah. everything, it's like, look, this is soul crushing. I want something soul enriching. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember I worked at a um, one summer before, I think it was the summer before moving to New York for art school. I was working at a, uh, I think it was a administrative administrative office for like a emergency responder company. And so I was just like, it was like, it was basically just alphabetizing files and, you know, a lot of clerical work. And it was, it was very dry and monotonous. And the whole time I was drawing mini, I was drawing, doing doodles and drawing comics on like sticky notes because the office had tons of sticky notes. So I saved a lot of them too. I'm I'm waiting for that that sort of either the the handheld or the digital version of these sticky notes to be like put together as an archive. I'm waiting for this. I need this to happen. Um, I know a, it's a thing that um, you know, in, in doing this, you know, especially when you you have that sort of network and that those people that are really close to you, you know, you can commiserate with them, but also you can maybe inspire them. So like. You know, my, my and, and the reason I'm mentioning this, um, so my my partner, she's working on a, a a comic, right? And she's doing the the Instagram thing, but she's a the writer and she's always looking for artists and having that sort of collaborative relationship. Not necessarily client, but collaborative. And she's like, Yeah, you know, I want to do this other creative thing that's like kind of fueling it where it's um going to different parts of the city. And I, I think I think when we went to Detroit, she did it there. So it might also be different landmarks that she's seen in our travels, but compiling Polaroids of things that have influenced the work that she's gonna, you know, write for in this comic. And oh, okay. I think it's a really cool idea. And I was like, that's a project in itself. I was like capturing sort of these moments of inspiration in your travels. That's a project. And yeah. you know, but kind of kind of having this idea of just this is sort of background fodder or something to pass the time. And it's like, no, work is there. Now mm -hmm. I get rid of all of my B-roll because before we got started, I was fumbling through my introduction um, for this and I finally got it. That's why I was like, we're going to go right to the interview. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> literally this, this, um, this recording has been running for almost an hour, right? And probably the first 20 minutes is me fumbling through and learning how to talk again. Oh wow! Okay, that's so, surprising to hear because I feel like you know, you you know, you're this this is like something you're very comfortable with. Yes, um, I'm, I'm comfortable with the conversation. The the sort of framing around it sometimes is a bit more. It's like a little too formal for me. I'm uh, okay. an informal individual, and it's funny. You know, I was telling you a little bit about um, you know visiting Philadelphia for these interviews, right? And I I, I interviewed the um, dean of U of Arts. And um, we, we were talking and I mentioned to her, I was like, I got the yips. And she's like, what do you mean by the yips? I was like, you know, when you're a baseball player, you can't throw to second base. And she's like, oh, I was like, yeah, I can't say my name or your name. I'm fumbling through it. So let's just have <laughs> a conversation. And she's like, that happens? I was like, it does. Oh, wow. That's, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I like, yeah, I mean, I'm someone who doesn't do a lot of these sort of recorded interviews.
honestly, because I, I myself get very self-conscious and I, I admire all my friends who teach regularly and they, they work with students and they, they can go up, you know, in front of a class of like uh, people and, and, you know, be very confident and, and sort of like spread the knowledge and, and their experience. But for me, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, I, I'm like, I'm actually, it's good that you're not formal because that you're sort of gregarious natural energy comes out. And I think for me, I, I'm like super formal when I first meet people. Yeah. And so, and so, yeah, it, it's helping, it's helping relax me as well. <laughs> that's great. I like to disarm people before I hit them with those rapid fire questions at the end. That's what, that's going to get everyone's in a, like a really comfortable spot. And it's like, Oh, right. I did mention that. Now you're going to ask me these questions. Um, so, so with that, um, I have a few more like sort of real questions before we get into those rapid fire questions. And the next one goes a little bit like this. So I'm seeing like, you know, these different awards, prestigious awards that, you know, your work has has garnered or have you. And, you know, there, there's this point where I think when folks get recognized for their work and their contribution to whether it's the canon, to their contribution to sustain their lifestyle and so on, getting that acknowledgement, what what do like accol accolades and accolades and what do accolades mean to you in the context of, of your career? Because um, that could be a moment where it's just like, all right, I'm going to keep making this sort of work. Or it's like, yeah, I'm going to get rid of that. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to do something that is so different from that. So what, do, what does that mean for you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, for me, I mean, the, the awards, uh, whether it's the Society of Illustrators uh, based in New York, uh, the New York Society of Illustrators competition, or there, you know, there, there's several different awards categories. There's... Um, there's also um, American Illustration that is not affiliated with Society of Illustrators, and and they do their own um, illustration annual every year. So um, I, I think it was something that we had been told about what like, and, you know, when I was at SBA, and, and it's just a you know you you technically do you 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 submit work to it, and then you you there is a fee and you pay for it. But I um, the the benefit is that if if your work is accepted into the annual, then art, many art directors do look and consult through these annuals to look at new work and and to find illustrators that they want to work with. So I, it, in a way, initially, I believe it was kind of a sort of a strategic you know it was it was like a strategic move on my part to to apply to them and but uh there was a period right after school ended where i i because i i don't think i was creating a lot of personal work or work for clients because i had like that sort of full-time job situation so i didn't um apply to them at all and it was only more recently i'd say maybe post like 2016 uh 2017 i i think i started you know submitting work to them again and um, honestly, like a lot of my personal work is, I feel like sometimes showcases, it, it's, you know, it, it's like a better showcase of my ability or my, like my thoughts or my, like, you know, or like I'm a lot more connected to the content. And so in more recent times, in in these recent years, I've, I've, I will not always apply to these awards every like regularly, but I will if I feel like a personal work or maybe a, a particular client job um, was was something I, I thought was like very strong. And so, yes, like applying to it, there's always that like from from experiences in the past, I've definitely applied and not had any work get in. But and so there's always a part of there's like a part of me that sort of scolds myself if I don't get in and then I just wasted the money to apply. But then when like when I had submitted some more recent work and this was like a few years back um, where uh, I submitted a series of just two panel experimental comics to the Society of Illustrators. And then he was awarded the, the gold medal for like that category of uh, just like personal work. And that in a way that felt very, um, you know, it, it felt it felt really good in the sense because it was some it was work that I was already felt very strongly for. And and, and I, I felt, you know, like. I, it was the work that I felt was I was the most proud of recently that I had done. And I had just done it for myself, totally self-motivated, not for any clients or anything. And there was I guess there was like a, a validating sort of uh, experience from from like having gotten that award. But at the same time, I think there is many incredibly talented 
creators who who don't apply to awards at all and and maybe it's not even interest it's not important to them and i completely respect that as well yeah i'm they it's i i got this award last year which felt really validating you know i got mm -hmm. the, the best po best podcast best of baltimore best podcast or what have you and that felt really cool and getting acknowledgement of these things, but sort of the seeing people and being able to, and this is going to sound gauche and pretentious or what have you, but being able to connect with people and that sort of connection that this podcast started as that entry point continues. That's actually the award. That's actually sort of that recognition because I, you know, once you see it, you can't unsee how some of these things work. And it's just like, I don't know. I try not to get caught in, in in either jaded or like really gassing myself up. Like, man, I'm the next thing. I'm I'm great. I'm the best. It's just like, no, I do this. This is a thing that happened. Enjoy it. And I don't do a really good job at enjoying it. You know, any of those things that happen, I, I'm just like, ah, eh. it's almost like Catholic guilt in some ways. It's like, ah, eh, something bad's going to happen now. <laughs> so right. it's for that, but it, it's cool to see it. It's cool to have those moments, but sort of getting some of these interviews, some of the ones that I was like, how the hell did I get this person? And I'm actually having a good conversation with them. That actually is the most rewarding part that feels like an accolade to be able to continue. Yeah, yeah. That's, no, that's absolutely it. And and it's like, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's, it's some institution or entity giving you like the praise or a symbol of the praise. It's the fact that you're having that experience and you made those connections. And I, I feel like, and, and that, like, you know, people are appreciating what you're doing. And I feel like for me, aside from the award, like what what always is the most um, I think what is the most validating sort of experience is when uh, another creator or artist or, or you know, uh, someone who's writing, I respect if they read or, or look at or like, you know, they, they see something I've done and they and they react positively. That's that's probably the best experience that that feels the best and is the most validating. Oh, yeah. So I have one last real question. I've moved one of my questions to the rapid fire because I think it fits really well. So I want to ask you in, in that part, but sort of the the final part of this, um, you know, this is my continuation of doing these these Philadelphia based interviews or Philadelphia centric interviews. So how how does the the art scene there like I, I see similarities I you know I'm based in Baltimore and, and I talk about sort of like I see Philadelphia being a few years ahead as to how art is maybe treated but I think the similar the cities are very similar um, a lot of like concentrated creativity a lot of nonprofits that aren't always the most helpful but a lot of concentrated creativity. Um, how how does being in an environment with that sort of concentrated creativity just you you you'll trip over a cheesesteak and an artist if you walk around Philly long enough? Uh, how, how does that contribute to your work and and how are you a part of like the community if at all? That's a really important question, and I think that's something like any creative person should consider wherever they live, um, but especially if you live in like a city and and like a major city like Philly and. So I moved here in 2014 and I feel like it's it took me a long time to feel uh, like close with like a community of creators, whether they were like illustrators, cartoonists or just whatever general visual artists of any type. And, and um, I feel like only in the maybe in the last like three or four years, I, I do feel like I'm more actually a part of the comics community here. And um a big part of that has been this. There's a there's a store and it's a slash gallery called Partners and Son, and it's um, it's just off of South Street, and uh, it's it's a wonderful resource because they they sell they're like a curated comics boutique where they they pick really beautiful art indie comics, and they also have regular shows, uh, and the shows are like multimedia shows so sometimes it's visual art sometimes it's original comics pages from a creator or sometimes it'll be performance sometimes it's music sometimes it'll be like readings from like zines or poetry and um the the owners tom and gina are fantastic and they also for the last three or four years have been running uh this uh, festival called the philly comics expo and that that event it, it just happened like uh last month and it I feel like that event is one of the, you know, it's one of the best sort of 
um, it's it's one of the best sort of resources for just like hanging out with other creators because you know you see people you haven't maybe you haven't seen them in like six months or something. Uh, everybody has their own lives, especially the people who have like families and stuff. And I think it's it's always been a great excuse for me to like just hang out with other people after the show. And um, there's usually events related to it. So that's that's like one great uh, um, resource for like cartoonists, I would say specifically. Um, there's a there's definitely a huge illustration. Like there's a bunch of different illustrators that I haven't met personally, but whose work I admire, who also are in Philly. And um, but I mean, I think because of the nature of our work and because we are so isolated, it sometimes it is it's it's very difficult to like actually be in those spaces all the time. Yeah. And I think um, like things like these like comics or zine festival, there's there's a there's another festival called the Punk Rock Flea, Flea Market that they do, I think, at least twice a year. I don't know. Have you ever checked that out? I've heard of it. I, I think I follow an IG and some of the folks I've interviewed, they were like, oh, I'm going to be here. And I was like, oh, okay. I wish I was up there right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, and they're they're great. I mean, they've been doing it for years now. I, do, I don't know exactly the history of it, but that's also a space where it's not obviously just cartoonists and you get all sorts of creators Uh and 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 different people, you know, just sort of selling their wares and their own work. Um, but yeah, Philly is full of, I think, also like this, these more scrappy DIY spaces. And then there's also the more like there's a gallery scene as well. And then uh, you know, and then uh, to which that that scene I'm not as familiar with, but I've had some friends have work in those spaces as well. And I think it's because it's Philly is. is like smaller than New York. So the gallery scene isn't seem as daunting. And it's like, you know, you can kind of, it's not too hard to just like follow like new work that's coming out and, and checking them out. So it's, it has that accessibility that's there and um, still small enough. It's, it's like the, the, it's like the further you go up North. Right. And, and that's where my sort of comparison with the, the Baltimore Philly thing is like, the geographically philadelphia is bigger than baltimore and so that scene is going to be bigger and then as you, you were mentioning a second ago it's like it's not it's not as big as new york so it's not as daunting in these different ways so it's almost like the further you go up the 95 or an amtrak as i do it's like right. oh, it's getting more you know more challenging to get into and you know one of the things I was mentioning, and even the, this podcast being a part of this this attempt to connect in those different communities and be able to find a way not to slide in because that feels snake and slithery, but to to kind of become a part of even as a visitor. I don't know if that happens in New York as as quickly as I was able to do with some of the stuff in Philly, and it's still so much more yeah. to explore. And um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a really good point, and it's it's good to hear that there is that community there because I know that I've interviewed, you know, a fair amount of folks that were pretty open to just like, hey, I'm from out of town. I do this. Would you be interested in coming on? And it's a resounding yes versus sort of tracking someone down. So sure. no, I think that scene is there. And I think people definitely want to talk macroly in a creative space, but also in more, you know, isolated in the visual arts, illustrators, cartoonists, things of that sort. And I think more stuff to come. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I was saying like the, I think the creative landscape in Philly is also going to, is constantly in flux and is going to change even more because actually a ton of people from New York and outside like other cities nearby are moving to Philly because New York is pricing out so many of its creative like people too. So it's, it's changing constantly. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And I, I would imagine some of the folks that are priced out of Philly are like coming down to Baltimore. It's that exchange. It's the exchange. Right. Yeah. It's <laughs> a, uh, you know, in, in doing this, like a lot of the interviews that I've done have been Baltimore, Philadelphia, and DC. And it's just like, DC is too expensive. Baltimore's right there in that spot where we're going through this this change here where it's like things going to be much more expensive here. So it's like, where do folks go? Delaware? I, I don't know. Like, <laughs> what, what are we going to do? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's like, I mean, a lot at the end of the day, it's like if you can't, you, you know, if you're struggling to support yourself and, and make rent and all of those things, then you're not going to be able to make art. Like it's, you know, you have to it has to be a sort of, you know, it, it has to be a, a situation where that like you can still be productive and you can still you can still take the time to make the work. Yeah. So 
that's that's where we'll kind of wrap on the real real podcast on the uh, the, the real questions and i'm going to move into this rapid fire portion and as i always tell everyone don't overthink these whatever the answer okay. is is the answer so i got now, now, now i'm getting nervous <laughs> no don't get nervous uh so i got two food related questions two movie related questions and something more art oriented so i'm going to start off with the art oriented one because i feel like that's more of a segue uh so in one word describe the the essence of your work i guess clean okay that's a good answer uh now now i i read i think i read about dumplings and i read about chili Ah. sauce (laughs) right right so all right so do you have like a go-to filling for a dumpling like that you really like a go-to filling, you said? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I love uh, uh, pork dumplings um, and and beef. Like sometimes I'll use like you know like um, it, in particular in Nepal, you know where I'm from, the dumplings are called momo, and uh, momo momo spots are opening up all over. Like I mean, they've been there's tons of them in New York City, but like <laughs> there's a new spot just opened in Philly. Um, uh, but in Nepal, like it's it's common to use buffalo meat. And that's actually been the most delicious that I've had. But like that's the that's the perfect dumpling. So you're you're selling a ticket for me to come back up to Philly specifically for those momos. So, 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 oh so yeah, well the new place I haven't even. It's like one of the few places in Philly that actually has Nepali food or mm-hmm. or or Tibetan food. So I need to check it out. But I I will absolutely let you know. And yeah, I'll I'll take you there. That's a bet. That is a bet. Um. So I, I I I got on this thing. I've been doing this this journey. I think I was sharing a bit earlier with you about sort of the some of the the food stuff I've been on recently, and I've kind of dove into Japanese food. I've been trying to do different dishes, and yeah. I'm always looking for something hot. I like the kick. So, do you have a chili sauce? And, and don't tell me that you make your own because I'm going to be really tight. But do you have a chili sauce that you really like, like uh, or you know that you, that I can procure? That's ultimately what I'm going after. You know, I I yeah, I definitely don't make my own chili sauce. I that that would be that just seems way too involved. Even though maybe it's I'm sure it's not as difficult as I'm thinking in my head. Um, it just depends on the cuisine though, because like I got my like you know garlic chili paste. You know, that's uh, th- there's like the it's kind of there's like the brand that's kind of affiliated with like sriracha. Um, sriracha is obviously popular for a reason because it's a good go to and I, I still like it. Um, but there's like for for more of a kick, there's like the it's like the similar brand with like the green top. And then like it's got it's like a garlic chili paste. And then there's also the um, there's like Lee Kum Kee, I think that is also does like the, there's a bunch of different brands, but they do like the hot chili oil and the, um, and the chili seeds. And that is absolutely like one of my favorites. I definitely have the chili oil. I had a Instacart delivery coming right before I turned this mic on and I got some of the, uh, what is it? Uh, Momofuku? Momofuku? Oh, um, okay. Yeah. I feel like those are like, I'm yeah. bougie. I'm bougie as hell. It's just yeah. like that's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, the quality on that one. No, that's cool. I usually I like to Philly has a great Chinatown. And whenever I'm there, I just try to grab a different brand because or or one I haven't tried before. But as long as you're getting that good, like, you know, you get the hot oil with the dried peppers like immersed, it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I had um I had this this dish I made. Uh, it's like basically it's just uh shaved ribeye and like onions called gyodon. And um I I it's like I pull out the wild um QP mayo and I pull out the, the chili crunch and I'm getting loose. It might be some bok choy going on. I'm right. diving in completely and it is Wait, you're putting the mayo in with the chili oil and stuff? Um, it's not like I, I'm just having it on top of the uh, the beef. So after everything is sort of like sorted out, it's just oh, like okay. this is a topping, and there's a bunch of sesame seeds that go on. It, it somehow it works. I don't go. I don't overdo it. I don't overdo it. I mean, it sounds fantastic. So yeah, it's, just, it's delicious. Uh, so this is sort of the 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 last two, and I think you know you know like mindedness, right? When it comes to um, horror movies, so mm-hmm. I've got to ask, um. Do, do you ever like work in some of the iconography, the the elements from like a great horror poster into either some of your your personal work or even get really sneaky and work it into some of the client work? Like, you know, put this in there. 
I'll work this in there somehow. Oh, like so so you're asking like have I have I like slipped in like references to like things like like horror and stuff yep. into projects? That's like that's a really good question. I don't think I I'm trying to think of I can't think of a um it's like a specific, the statute of limitations. I, mean, I think honestly a lot of the stuff I do isn't like involved with horror or even that, you know, as much as I love the genre of, of film and, and books and stuff, but like, um, I feel like a lot of, a lot of my client work, you know, the stuff that I do to pay the bills is, is less, it, it maybe is more quiet or, or less sort of uh, foreboding or, or within these genre trappings of like uh, creepy stuff. But, um, I don't know. I, and also I, I'm actually, personally trying to I want to I want to do a series of short comics uh that I want to collect and I want them to be more like like Twilight Zoney where they're like sort of surreal as opposed because I don't actually my work isn't lend itself to really grotesque tons of detail that kind of stuff like some people are amazing at that and mine I just want it to be kind of quiet and weird and I, I dig it so yeah. this is the other part that kind of goes with that question and you know when I think of either horror or I think of some of the older stuff. Like I see Italian horse. So I think of what is Giallo. I think of that sort of stuff. What have you? Yeah. So let's say there's a director or someone who's in that sort of like space that reaches out and it's like, look, we're doing a 30th anniversary, 40th anniversary edition. And we want someone to, in, in your style, you know, do our, our cover work for it. Almost like the um, criterion collection or now like, Hey, we got these new who is the director with the movie? Oh, that's amazing. It's such a good question. I mean, I would absolutely, that would be a dream job anyway, just to be able to do a Criterion, like, special release of, of like, a classic. I feel like I do love stuff that I don't think my work works well for. Like, there's, like, the really, really gnarly, like, sort of gory graphic stuff, like the Lucio Fulci, uh, um, the Italian director. And he, like, his stuff, like, um, the Beyond is like an amazing movie, and it's. Uh, um, but I, I don't know. If, I, I would say maybe that has maybe less hyper gore than some of his other things. But so maybe the Beyond, I would love to do that, or any Dario Argento, just because I think his stuff is so stylized that it's almost clean. Also, like I mean, of course, there's like tons of blood and neon colors, and it's it's very over the top but like i feel like he, he he's someone i would also love to like you know i don't it doesn't have to be suspiria though probably the most famous one but like any of his other like really weird slasher projects would be really fun i mean you could do like deep red just just make it happen just deep red is great uh maybe op operas also like wild that could be, i i feel like it would but the thing is with me it would have to be like my whole thing is just like maybe it's more like tension or something. I don't. I'm not good at drawing the gory moment. Like 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 the like the moment of like intense violence. I I can't. I don't know how to depict that. Like that's why like those 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 superhero people who grew up like drawing in that way is like it always blows my mind because it's like how do you do like I'm not I'm not like about action. I feel like I'm just like the the tension leading up to the action. I, I, as I see it and I think about it, one, one of the things that really pops up, like uh, my partner was terrified for a better part of about 40 years of the, uh, the, what was the movie, uh, Scanners. And oh, we sat okay. there watching it because she was like, I remember back in the day I was there to see um, a Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor movie. And that's the trailer where the guy's head explodes. <laughs> <laughs> and she's just like, this is oh, traumatizing. So she was in the, wait, she was in the, she saw a trailer for, uh, scanners while going to see a Gene Wilder movie? Yes. Okay. Wild. And she's like, yeah, I think we're going to see this little slapstick comedy and then it's just scanners. Blam. And wow. yeah. yeah. so she, she to try to get over that fear, that 40-year-old fear, if you will, of, of that movie, she brought the Criterion Collection version of it and the cover art is so out there for it. It's literally Michael Ironside's head just. Oh, his, yeah. It, uh, no, that's amazing. It's that it's the he's the Canadian, also an incredibly talented uh, cartoonist who does these really experimental, just mind boggling comics. And they hired him to do the cover for that that Criterion scanners. And it's it's one of the best. It's It's so beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, it's Connor, Connor Williamson, I think is his name. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm like it's some of the things that you said. I've been typing things down. I got research to do after this. Uh, so oh. thank you for that. Um, that's going to be great. Um, but yeah, I, I think sometimes that sort of minim minimalistic, that clean sort of work, that's the stuff that always sticks out for me as well. You can have the really extreme sort of, wow, you really want in. There's a lot of work in this. And then something that's just like, okay, you know who your audience is. You you put that reference in there. You get your audience. So I think that that's, that's, really, that's really cool. And I think that's pretty much it for the podcast. We got everything. We got everything in. Um, so what I want to do in these final moments is, one, thank you for coming on to this podcast and, and hanging out with me. And yeah. And, and two, I want to invite and encourage you to, you know, any, you know, share any final thoughts you might have um, and let folks know where they can check you out, your work, social media, website, all of that good stuff. The floor is yours. Okay. Um, well, first, thanks again. It's an honor. And I, I really appreciate you like inviting me on and, and having this conversation. It's, I don't like talking about my work a lot and, uh, and you made it very like comfortable. So uh, I appreciate it. And uh, I, I, most of my work, um, I post, I, I have my website, anujink.com, but that, as I said before, is in need of updating. Uh, we'll get to that hopefully before the year's out. Um, but I, I probably post the most current stuff just on my Instagram. It's just anujink, A-N-U-J-I-N-K. Um, and uh, it's, I like in terms of final thoughts, I will say it's we're like because my a lot of my work, uh, especially my, like a lot of my personal work is sort of political in tone and can be uh, we're living through kind of a very, a very dark time right now. And uh, I'm someone who's been sort of uh, advocate for sort of uh, social justice for Palestine and, and for the Palestinian struggle for for many years. Um, it's something that I sort of had discovered like back when I was in college, like in Colorado years ago. And so it's, that's been like almost 20 years. And it's, it's basically, um, it's something that's been very important to me. And I think um, right now we're living through like a really dark time and a dark chapter because it's essentially like state sponsored genocide and our government is literally like funding the entire thing. And it's been a horrible tragedy for Israelis that were also, uh, you know, that were that were killed and murdered, like um, basically since October 7th. But the but the problem is, I think with our media, it, everything has been extremely everything has been extremely filtered through the through the basically through the lens of the State Department and the weapons uh, contractors and and um, and it's basically just it, it's all been reframed to push forward us like control of the region and and doing it under the guise of that we care about like only about uh, Israel or we care about the sanctity of these innocent Israelis but I, when you when you pull back and then you look at the history this has actually been a war about uh, you know, this is a this is actually an anti-colonial struggle, and uh, and that's why that's the Pal Palestinian people have been occupied for over like it's been over seventy five years now, and basically you can draw that parallel to indigenous struggles all over the world, and like you know whether it's Haiti or it's the United the indigenous in the United States, so. Sorry, I didn't, don't want to go too big on a rant, but um, there is a big, huge action happening in D.C. tomorrow, which I think is going to be the largest, like, pro, like sort of uh, demonstration for, like, uh, Palestinian justice and also for a ceasefire to, like, that will, at the end of the day, will make everybody safer, like, whether it's, you know, Israelis or Palestinians. And um, I, I just want to, I'm not able to make it to D.C., but um, I, I know a lot of uh, friends, colleagues, and and other people who are who are going to make that trip and i just encourage people to um not avoid the mainstream media and and don't watch cnn or fox news or any of that stuff or msnbc and just sort of um find alternative uh media sources and and um and, and just be aware of what's going on because these are we're living through some very crazy times right now Thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that piece. And uh, I'll just throw out this sort of comment to to pin it out because I don't want to be one of those guys of like, oh, well, you said your thing. And, and But I I, I think it, it does speak to, you know, historically, we've we've talked about things in a certain way. And I think at least here, I, I've seen people tagging buildings um, with a message that runs counter to the the message that we see on mainstream media. 
that mm-hmm. it's just like, well, the people feel this way, but the media is telling us that we should feel this way. And yeah. there's a disconnect that's there. It's a disconnect from, from the people. I've seen so much like, you know, free Gaza. I see people putting up like huge, like painting their entire house with sort of the, um, the, what's the Palestinian flag or have you. And, okay. yeah. you know, seeing that and taking what comes with that, you know, with sort of the response that that's there. And, you know, I'm I, I'm not a big fan of this lack of nuance that we have. You know, it's either this or it's that. It can be any consenting things and or dissenting things rather. And, you know, we we have this idea, we have these sort of ways of thinking, ways of discussing stuff that is very it's oriented in the wrong way. You know, frankly, uh, you know, when we start looking at how the media works and how that's presented, um, I remember, you know, probably six years ago, maybe a little, little, yeah, probably about six years ago, maybe seven. Um, and this, and this podcast started off as a, as a response to Trump and his weird rhetoric, um, mm-hmm. like dangerous rhetoric, really. And you know, I shared with folks like what my voting thing was, what my thoughts were around it, and. You, you know, you hear the talking points that we can only talk about this in this way. Oh, if you didn't vote in this way, that means you pretty much got him in the office. It's like, oh, right, I, have, right. I have that power. And, you know, sort of this this notion away from free thought and this notion away from having an opinion that's your own. Um, right. Almost people trying to stamp that out, you know, using yeah. violence, using threatening language, using this notion of cancelization. And... Mm-hmm. No, well, canceling, not cancelization. That's not a word. Um, well, cancellation, and and we we see it. And the the idea. Let's just look at all of it neutrally. The idea is flawed in itself. Canceling someone or trying to suppress what someone's perspective is on a particular area. You mm-hmm. ask the person what their opinion is. They shut what their opinion is. It doesn't necessarily have to match what your opinion is. And that's just the way that works. Oh, I mean, that's the hardest thing to tell any anybody in the online left, right? And of, of which I am absolutely a part of. And so I feel like you're right. There is no, it, it is, especially when you're trying to draw broader coalitions about realities. And I think, and, and about like important actions that need to be taken to achieve like a, 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 like a just society. And I feel like you're right. Like, like a lot of, I, and I'm speaking for the left because I, or, or my experience with like the left and how I view it, because that's who I care about. And that's a part of the group I'm in or whatever group or or lack of a, a coherent group. But yeah, I, I know that, yeah, especially online, it's easy to jump down people's throats for not saying, saying the right thing. And um, I think that's why with this, particularly this crisis in Gaza, I, I feel like I don't expect people to know exactly the history because we've been fed like misinformation our whole lives and Mm -hmm. and just really try to like, let people be able to ask questions. And then I think they'll people at the end of the day, people will make their own conclusions. And I think most people side with like justice, like human justice. And there you have it, folks, for new Shrestha. I'm Rob Lee saying that there's art, culture and community in and around your neck of the woods. You've just got to look for it. (laughs) 